Welcome to the One God Report podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion about John 1.14. The word became flesh. Is God flesh? In the previous episode, we asked the question, do we really believe that God is flesh? Or that God became flesh? And we looked at this word, that's translated became, how it has a wide range of semantic possibilities, and how it is better to understand John 1.14 as the word was flesh. So now let's take a closer look at this word flesh in John 1.14. The word became flesh. John had his reasons for specifically using the word flesh. Deity of Christ followers interpret the word became flesh, to mean that the second person of the Godhead took on a human body or took on abstract human nature. Note the subtle change of language. Deity of Christ proponents don't like saying that God was flesh or that God is flesh. In saying that God took on flesh, by definition then, The deity of Christ interpretation eliminates the possibility that Jesus was a human person, since, for the deity of Christ believer, the person animating the body of flesh was a pre-incarnate God who put on flesh, not the human person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The deity of Christ interpretation ends up claiming that Jesus of Nazareth was not a human person, but was a divine person walking around in a human body. Deity of Christ believer, do you really think that God became flesh? Is God still flesh? If so, why has the Trinitarian description of God for hundreds of years been that God is three persons in One essence. Is the one essence of God flesh? Next topic. Enter the Greek philosopher Plato. The deity of Christ view that a God took on a human body is based on the Greek philosophical view that a person is separate and distinct from his body of flesh. To the Greek, The real person, the person's soul or his self, is separate from the body of flesh. The body of flesh is a kind of shell that the real person, the soul, inhabits for a while. And since the soul, the person, can be separated from the body, death, to the Greek philosopher, is only a separation of the soul from the body. Listen to what the Greek philosopher Plato says about the separation of the soul from the body at death in his work called Phaedo, paragraph 64c. Plato writes, Death is the separation of the soul from the body, and the state of being dead is the state in which the body is separated from the soul and exists alone by itself and the soul is separated from the body and exists alone by itself.
unquote. For most traditional Christians, Catholic, Protestant, or Greek Orthodox, this quote from Plato is basically Bible. I've been told by conservative Christians of every stripe, from persons in the pew to pastors and seminary professors who hold PhDs in theology, that death is the separation of the soul from the body. At death, the soul, the person, separates from the body, but still lives. The idea of a disembodied soul, alive, going to heaven, or for that matter, going to hell, stems from this philosophy of death, popularized by Plato. And this Greek idea of a soul being alive apart from the body is why a deity of Christ believer interprets John 1.14 the way he does. Influenced by Platonic Greek philosophy, the Christian believes that a person, in this case, one person of a tri-personal God, could put on impersonal human flesh. And then the death of that God person was only the separation of the soul from the body of flesh. But this is not the biblical way to understand who man is and what death is. In the Bible, yes, man is somewhat of a composite, but he is not alive, separate from a body of flesh. Genesis 2.7 describes how God formed man from the ground, and then man became alive, a living person, a living soul. In Hebrew, it's nefesh chaya a living soul, living person, when God breathed life into him. There is no human person living without a body of flesh. If the body of flesh is dead, the human person is dead. When I die, I die, not just my body. In the Bible, to be dead means to be dead. That is, to not be alive. God wasn't kidding when he said, you will certainly die. God did not say, your soul will separate from your flesh. Your flesh will die, but you will keep living. No, God said, you will certainly die. In the Bible, it was the liar who said, you will not certainly die. Genesis 3, 4. Unlike in Greek philosophy, in the Bible, to die means that the person, not just the body, is dead. In the Bible, also birds and animals are flesh and living souls, nefesh chaya. See Genesis 120, 121, 24, 130, and 721, etc. To a Hebraic thinker who knows his Bible, and whose thinking is uncluttered with Greek philosophical presuppositions, a being who became flesh was a bird, an animal, another creature that walked on the ground, or a human. See Genesis 6, 17-20 and 7:21. We can understand in the context that John 1.14, flesh, is not talking about other birds or animals, but is describing a human being. 
So even though a human may be made up of other elements like bone, blood, and God's life-giving spirit, a human person, all of that human person, is said to be flesh. If you are flesh, you are a human person. In describing that the word logos was or became flesh, John is using a figure of speech known as synecdoche. I looked it up. Where a part, in this case flesh, represents the whole, in this case a human being. Again, the part, flesh, represents the whole, human. When a ship's captain says, all hands on deck, the word hands represents whole people, the sailors, not just their hands. The captain of the ship is not calling for hands to be severed and tossed on the deck. The captain is using a figure of speech where hands represent whole people. If my friend pulls up in a brand new car and I say, wow, George, nice wheels. I don't mean that his Goodyear tires are really nice. The word wheels is a figure of speech that stands for or represents the whole car. When the author of the Gospel of John says the word became or was flesh, he means that the word was a human person. Not just part of a human person, not just abstract human nature, or just a physical human body with no human person. No, John means the logos, the word, was a whole, entire human person. The word flesh represents the whole human person. The deity of Christ interpretation of John 1.14 fails to understand that flesh represents a whole human person. In good Greek philosophical fashion, the deity of Christ's believer separates the flesh from the whole person. He separates the body the flesh, from the soul. But the author of the Gospel of John was a Jew, and he had the biblical view, the Hebraic view, not a Greek philosophical view of who and what a human is. The Greek and Christian philosophers may believe that the soul or person is something alive, separate from flesh, and that a divine person could take on human flesh? But the Bible, including the author of the Gospel of John, uses flesh in a very different way than a Greek thinker. John uses flesh as a way to mean a human person. The Word of God was a human being, a real human person, flesh. Neither God See John 4.24, nor angels have flesh. Neither God nor angels are flesh. Human beings are flesh. From a Hebraic biblical perspective, the word became flesh, eliminates the possibility that the word was a divine person. Next, more reasons why John used the word flesh, and first, because Adam was flesh. 
the word became flesh or the word was flesh is the gospel of John's way of saying what the apostle Paul said when he called Jesus the second Adam. Adam was flesh. So was Jesus. To state that the word was flesh is to state that the word was a human person like the first man, Adam. In Genesis 2-7, Yahweh, God, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living person, a nefesh chaya. In Genesis 2-23, when woman was made, the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In Genesis 6-3, before the flood, Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And Psalm 78-39, Yahweh remembered that they were flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. So, one reason why John said the word became flesh or was flesh was to emphasize that like Adam and Eve, the word was a human being, a whole, entire human being, a nefesh chaya, a living soul of flesh. Another reason why John used the word flesh is because of the resurrection, the resurrection of flesh. The Gospel of John is a Jewish record of how God sent the promised Messiah, the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. After describing the uniquely empowered by God ministry of this man Jesus in the land of Israel, the author relates that Jesus the Messiah was put to death. But then Jesus, as flesh, was raised from the dead by God. And then Jesus appeared to his followers a number of times as flesh, resurrected, before ascending as flesh to God. All this happened to Jesus as flesh. And as flesh, the whole life of Jesus speaks to us. God spoke to us through this man of flesh. We can't forget, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he was flesh that Mary Magdalene could hold on to, John twenty seventeen. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he was a scarred body of flesh that Thomas could see and touch and feel, John twenty twenty seven. When Jesus stood among his followers after being resurrected from the dead as flesh, his followers thought that Jesus was a spirit. But Jesus said to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That's in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 24, verse 39. And then Jesus ate a piece of fish in their presence as proof that he was real flesh and bone. And why were Jesus' followers so enamored with joy after being with him when he was resurrected flesh? Because they realized that God himself had once again put on flesh? 
no. What a perverted, Greek-influenced interpretation of the gospel record. To the contrary, the apostles were beside themselves with joy because they were witnesses that God had raised the man, Jesus of Nazareth, a flesh-and-bone person, from the dead. And the man, Jesus, was evidence of what God had in store for other humans of flesh. In this way, John 1.14 can be said to be a resurrection text, because flesh was resurrected from the dead. But John 1.14 is not only a resurrection text, because in saying that the word was flesh, John is insisting that this person, Jesus, both during his life on this earth and after his resurrection to glory, was flesh, a human person. It is a human being, flesh, in the bosom of the Father, who has made the Father known. John 1.18 Next topic. Sure, Jesus became flesh. I'm not really arguing for a change in translation of John 1.14, just the right understanding. As mentioned, both in this podcast and in podcast number 39, there are huge problems and contradictions for the deity of Christ's understanding that the word became flesh. But for a one God believer, there's no real problem with the translation became. Sure, Jesus became flesh because he was conceived, born, lived, was empowered by God's Spirit, spoke God's words, performed miracles, was put to death, was raised from the dead, and exalted to God's right hand. The whole life of the man Jesus is a declaration of God. The life of Jesus happened. Jesus the Messiah came on the scene in the first century of our era. The man Jesus who became, who came on the scene, was the Word of God. The declaration that the Word was flesh does not lose the sense of becoming or coming into existence. The Word of God became because he showed up on the scene as a human being, Jesus, flesh. There was no transformation from some pre-human person into flesh. Knowing that the word became, or existed, or was flesh, also helps us understand that when the gospel writer introduced the word, the logos, in John 1.1, he was not introducing a pre-flesh being. The same logos in John 1.1 was flesh, the human being we learn in John 1.17 and 1.45 is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. The next topic, becoming flesh at the baptism? A one God believer whom I highly respect suggests that the phrase, the word became flesh, relates to the baptism of Jesus and empowerment by the Spirit of God. This suggestion has some merit because John the baptizer does play a significant role in identifying the Messiah Jesus, 
even in the next verse, verse 15. And in the scripture, the word of God is associated with spirit. You can see the show notes for a list of verses. The word is associated with spirit. And in the baptism, the spirit came upon Jesus. For the Hebrew thinker, spirit is ruach. Spirit, ruach, means wind or breath. Words are spirit or wind. Because words are formed by the wind, the breath coming out from the mouth. Right, The words I'm speaking right now are wind coming out of my mouth. In the same way, figuratively, God's word is breath that comes from God's mouth. See Deuteronomy 8.3. However, I believe it is best to understand that the whole life of Jesus, his entire life of flesh, is what John intends when he says the word became flesh. The coming of the Spirit upon Jesus is certainly an important part of the word being flesh, but not exclusively so. The baptism of Jesus is not really described in John's gospel. The coming of the Spirit upon Jesus is described in only four verses when the baptizer recalled the event in his testimony. John 1, 31-34. It is better to understand the Word became flesh as a reference to the entire ministry of Jesus. His equipping by God's Spirit, His teaching, the miracles He performed, His death, His resurrection, and exaltation as flesh are all reasons to declare that the Word became flesh. God spoke through the entire flesh life of Jesus. The next topic, context. The three sections of John's prologue, or the three paragraphs of John's prologue. Many commentators recognize that the prologue of John's gospel breaks down into three sections. Although there may be some discussion about where the transition between the sections occurs, Verses 1 to 5 make up the first section, verses 6 through 13, the second section, and verses 14 to 18, the third section. So another question that affects the interpretation of John 1.14 is if the verses and sections of the prologue are strictly chronological. I believe it can be seen that the verses are not presenting a strictly historical chronological sequence. For instance, already in verse 5, which closes the first section of the prologue, the statement that, quote, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it, unquote, is most likely a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Whereas, in the verses following, verses 6 through 8, we learn of the testimony of John the baptizer about Jesus the light early, in Jesus' ministry. So, the verses and the three main paragraph sections of John 1.18 are not strictly chronological. Rather, they repeat and expand on each other. In addition to being a way to emphasize, the repetition and the expansion in the prologue is the literary equivalent to a song in three-part harmony. In a song, 
the three parts are all sung simultaneously. But in literature, the parts are written out one after the other. Or, as the author Peter Gentry describes in the book Kingdom Through Covenant, repetition and expansion is the literary equivalent of a Dolby surround sound system. Here's the quote from this book. Ancient Hebrew literature takes up a topic and develops it from a particular perspective and then stops and takes up the same theme again from another point of view. This pattern produces 3D ideas and is pursued recursively, that means in repetition, at both the macro and micro levels. One begins a conversation on a topic and then closes that conversation down and begins another. Taken together, both conversations are like the left and right speakers of a stereo surround system. Each differs slightly, and together they produce 3D Dolby surround sound. Unquote. Now, all incarnation theories ignore this repetition, review, and expansion aspect of John's prologue. All incarnation theories interpret John 1.14 as describing the conception of Jesus, or maybe his birth, ignoring that Jesus, as an adult human being and his ministry, are already presented in verses 1-13. through 13. The prologue states that this one, the Word, was with God. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines, and darkness did not overcome it. The prophet John was sent to testify about the light that was in the world. The prophet John was not the light, but he testified to the light, the man Jesus, who was in the cosmos, that is, among the Jewish people. He was among his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Well, some did receive him. And those who believe in his name received the authority to become children of God. All of this is stated before the word became flesh. Verses 1 through 13 are a summary of the adult ministry of the man Jesus. The adult ministry of Jesus is described as well in verses 15 through 18. In fact, in the very next verse, John 1.15 returns to the testimony of John the Baptizer. It makes no sense that the author, in the midst of his description of the adult ministry of the Baptizer and Jesus, suddenly interrupted with five short words to describe the metaphysical transformation of a god into a human embryo. The next topic, John chapter 6, My Flesh in my blood. The other main place in the Gospel of John where the word flesh is used is in a cluster of verses in John chapter 6, verses 50 to 56, where Jesus, in comparison to the manna that came from heaven as provision for Israel, Jesus describes himself as the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus said, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6.51 The living bread which came down from heaven was Jesus' flesh. What did he mean? 
Obviously, he didn't mean that his flesh literally descended from the starry heavens. No, by his flesh, he meant his life. His flesh represents his whole life. The life of Jesus was the provision of God, the bread from heaven. Jesus' listeners didn't understand, so Jesus took his description a step further. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6.53 Now, whoa, 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 hang on a second there. Israel was never to eat flesh with blood, let alone drink blood. So what is going on here? It is obvious that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. See John 10.6 Jesus meant that he gives his very life, his blood and flesh for the life of the world. Unless one eats his flesh and drinks his blood, that is, unless one appropriates the life and death of the human Jesus, he will not have life in the age to come. Look back to the Torah of Moses. To the biblically-minded Jew, the soul, the life, the nephesh, is the blood. Jesus uses my flesh and my blood to mean his life which is the only life he has. In Leviticus 17.11, God told Israel, For the life, that's the nephesh, the soul, of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, your nephashot, your souls. You see, an animal as well has a nephesh, a soul. Deuteronomy 12.23 says, For the blood is the life. The blood is the nephesh, the soul. The blood is the soul. So let us stress again that it is the life and death of the human Jesus, of the man Jesus from Nazareth, that ransoms men for God. And there is no other Jesus. God does not have flesh, and God does not have blood, nor does God die. God's life, God's soul, is not in blood. Deity of Christ belief in the end denies the life, the real person, the human Jesus, who gave his life to ransom men for God. Without the human Jesus, there is no mediator between God and humanity. See 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 5. To say that Jesus is God is tantamount to saying that God's life is in his blood. God doesn't have blood. Another verse that is appropriate to mention here is 1 John 4, 2, which says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in flesh is from God. This verse does not say that every spirit that confesses that God took on flesh or that God came as flesh is from God. No, 
that would be a spirit that is not from God. Jesus, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus is the name of the human person. Christ is the title of the human person. To come means to show up on the scene at a particular time in history. It doesn't mean to literally come from a heavenly location as a Greek thinker might believe. Jews expected the prophet like Moses to come, John 6.14. Jews expected the Messiah to come, John 11.27. Jesus the Messiah came in flesh. He was a human person. That human person, Jesus the Messiah, who lived, was put to death, raised from the dead, and exalted to heaven. He is flesh. So in review, when John wrote the word became flesh, or the word was flesh, he eliminated any possibility that the word was a divine being. To a person steeped in biblical Hebraic thought, Flesh, as a living being, a nefesh chaya, could only be a bird, an animal, or a human being. To the Hebraic mind, a divine being is not even on the list of possibilities of becoming flesh. It is a great tragic irony that through foreign philosophical speculation, the five words from John 1.14 have come to mean the very opposite of what John intended. Flesh has been turned into a soulless, personless body that a divine being could put on. So let us ask this question. Is God flesh? Deity of Christ believer, Trinitarian, do you believe that God is flesh? You keep insisting that John 1.1 and 1.14 are proof that God became human. But don't dodge the word flesh. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh. And if God became flesh, does the Trinity have two natures? Is your God flesh? Think biblically. Is the life of your God in his blood. John 1.14 is not saying that a pre-incarnate Logos, or Word, became the human being Jesus by infusing his spirit into a human embryo. Such thinking is only Greek philosophical speculation that says exactly the opposite of what John intended. Rather, John 1.14 is saying that the word was flesh, the human being, Jesus. This uniquely equipped human being lived some 33 years before he was put to death, but then was raised from the dead by God, and for a short while lived with the disciples as resurrected from the dead flesh. See Luke 24.39 before he was taken to his God as flesh. God has spoken to us through that human being. The word of God to mankind was that person of flesh. 
the authors of the New Testament books of Hebrews and Revelation agree. Hebrews 1, 1-2 In various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son. And Revelation 19, 13, This is the name by which he is called, the Word of God. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishma'u. The humble will hear and rejoice.